Well, good morning. It is a, uh, a deep joy to be here this morning. Chris and I are so excited to be with you. It's been a season this fall of just being overwhelmed by the graciousness and kindness of God. And the latest manifestation of that has been the welcome we've received from so many of you. So thank you. I could say so much more on that, but I want to preach. Um, We look forward to getting to know you, and thanks for not throwing anything this morning if you don't like what you hear. Uh, Before I start, a a quick homework assignment for you, and I need you to fulfill this in the next week, and I need to, I'm going to check in and hear back. You could do it today if you can. Uh, Find a search committee member and give them a hug or a handshake and say thank you. Uh, you don't have to say thank you for picking me. You can, you can withhold judgment on that. I already thank them for that. But you and I, and, and I include myself in this, we don't, we don't know and we probably can't even imagine how hard they have worked in this last season. Um, and they have done it in reliance upon God and prayer. And uh, they have shown to me and the other candidates and to this congregation uh, the love of Jesus in their service. So Go find one. You can look around right now. There might be one near you. I won't make them stand up, but you could fulfill your homework assignment really early today if you just go find them right after the service. So thank them. Uh, Probably thank their families, too, for uh, they're going to enjoy Wednesday night this week, I think, for the first time in a year. So uh, (laughs) listen, I am uh, I'm a fan of acknowledging elephants in rooms, and there are some elephantine qualities to this morning on a uh, this is not a normal Sunday morning on a normal Sunday morning. Your post-church drive home probably includes some outstanding punditry on the sermon, its strengths and weaknesses, and and how the preacher could have done a better job. And and some of you may even begin to compose that very helpful email that has constructive feedback (laughs) on on how you can can do a better job. This morning, uh, this is a, a rare occasion, you are literally going to have the chance to vote whether or not you want to hear more from this guy. That is quite, that's quite a setup. In, in traditions like ours, where the congregation gets to vote on calling their pastor, this thing that we're doing is a traditional practice, I think goes back at least to Calvin and Geneva. The candidate gets up here and preaches, and then you get to decide whether or not you want him to preach to you some more. The search committee and the presbytery have done a great and thorough job. They've asked lots of questions. Um, the Presbytery will get to ask lots of questions next weekend, Lord willing. Uh, we've talked about leadership. We've talked about gifting. We've talked about theological views. But the main thing, the main test, the main tryout for you guys before you make your vote is not a lecture on leadership or a theological essay or a sample counseling session. It's a sermon. Get up and see if this guy can preach. Now that may seem normal to you. It's, it, maybe it seems odd. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, it definitely seems odd. Why do we do this? And what I want to do this morning is try to convince you that this practice and the priority that it reflects is cause for great rejoicing and celebration at the goodness of the gospel. Not because of any particular preacher and certainly not this one, but because of what it reveals about the nature of that gospel and the Christ that is proclaimed. To do that, we're going to look at one of my favorite passages in the Bible, a passage that I need to hear this morning, so I'm going to read it and then we're going to talk about it, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. 
Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to gather as your people called to worship by your word. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We could not know you if you did not reveal yourself to us. And you have done that in all of creation, but you have done it savingly in your scriptures and most of all in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so as we attend to your word, we pray that you would help us, help me, help all of us to see and treasure Christ as our one and only Savior. Lord, you have not restrained your mercy from us. I pray that you would help me not to restrain my lips this morning, that you would give me words to proclaim the glad news of deliverance, and that all who seek you would rejoice and be glad, that those who love your salvation would say continually, great is the Lord. Be with us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We can learn a lot about a thing by the way it is packaged and delivered. Kids, y'all just had a good lesson in this. I I should confirm this. Do y'all do Christmas presents in Charlottesville? (laughs) Yeah, okay. I'm glad to hear that. My kids will be happy to hear that. You can learn a lot about a Christmas present without opening it. And my children have become experts at this. Some of the presents wind up under the tree, and you can go and you can examine the size. You might even shake it, and you can figure out potentially what's inside. Our daughter, our oldest daughter, Margaret, has gotten a step further, and she made a daily examination of the packages that would arrive at the door and the return addresses and compare that to her list and see what was coming. So that before she even touched the wrapping paper, she had a pretty good idea of what was underneath the tree. You current UVA students won't remember this uh, because you didn't experience it, but for old folks like me, When we were applying to colleges, the acceptances or rejections would come by the U.S. Postal Service. It still exists, I think. And if you you don't click on a link to go on a website, you'd actually have to walk to your mailbox and open it up. And that was a bit terrifying. But once you saw the mail, you knew without even opening the letter whether it was good news or bad news. If it was a big, fat 8.5 by 11 with a brochure inside, you were in. If it was a sad little skinny standard envelope, (laughs) you could just go ahead and start crying. (laughs) We can learn a lot about something by how it is delivered, and the same is very much true of the gospel. The passage here we read in 2 Corinthians gives us Paul's 
theology of ministry. And in it, it's his understanding of how the gospel is packaged and delivered to us. And he shows us that the gospel is a thing that is packaged and delivered by proclamation. The gospel is delivered by speaking words. Whether it's a pastor on Sunday morning or one of you in a coffee shop with your neighbor, the gospel is a thing that can be spoken. If you've been around church for a while, that might seem totally normal to you, but I want us this morning to ponder that reality and see that in it we have great cause for rejoicing. On the one hand, it helps explain what the heck we're doing here. The spoken nature of the gospel helps us understand the priority of preaching and the reason you might have a preacher come out and preach before you decide to call him as your pastor. But more importantly, the spoken nature of the gospel points us to the glory and the graciousness that we find in it, the good news of Jesus. And so as we both experience this unusual Sunday together, rather than trying to ignore it, we're just going to jump right in and look it right in the face and see what we learn about Jesus through this good design of God for his church. Uh, if you take notes, here's the outline for this morning. I normally have three points. I only have two. That's not a promise it's going to be a short sermon. It's just that's how it worked out. <laughs> here, are your, here is your outline for this morning. Uh, the message that is proclaimed, and then secondly, the speakers who proclaim it. The message that is proclaimed and the speakers who proclaim it. Okay, so first off, let's zoom in on verse 5, and we're going to spend a lot of time in verse 5 this morning, where Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, Paul, in context, in Corinth, is experiencing criticism and opposition and competition. He's writing to a congregation who is skeptical of him, perhaps. People are criticizing Paul. And Paul says he's willing to defend his office and authority, but he also wants to make abundantly clear that the gospel he's proclaiming is not about him. They're criticizing Paul, but Paul says, look, it's not about me. What I have to tell you and what you have to accept or reject is ultimately not Paul. It's Jesus Christ. And that was really good news for Paul, and it's really good news for us. At the end of the day, it's not you or me that is offered in the gospel, it's Jesus. If you've ever had the experience of sharing the gospel with a friend or thinking about it, there's this temptation we have sometimes to say, okay, I'm going to show them how wonderful my life is, and then they may be able to want to believe the things that I believe. But the good news of Jesus and the gospel is that you don't actually do that. You're not offering someone yourself, you're offering someone Jesus. And Paul wants that to be abundantly clear to his people and why is that good news? Well, because the Jesus who he proclaims, the Jesus who we proclaim, is Lord. What do we proclaim? Not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, Paul loves to talk about proclaiming Christ. If you want to jot these down, you can go do a comparative study. But 1 Corinthians 1 has a lot of similar themes. Colossians chapter 1 has a lot of similar themes. And then there's, a, there's a good comparison here to 1 Corinthians 1.23. It's a familiar passage to some, but there's where Paul says what we proclaim is Christ crucified. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says we proclaim Christ as Lord. And despite initial appearances, those two things actually are not contradictory, but profoundly complementary. 
Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 1 points to this key moment of Christ's atoning work on our behalf. This moment where he takes the punishment of our sin so that we might be forgiven and redeemed. But here in 2 Corinthians 4, when Paul says Christ Jesus is Lord, he's pointing to the finished nature of that work. Because hopefully you all know this, Christ didn't stay crucified. He rose from the dead and he walked among his disciples, but then he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, enthroned as Lord. His enthronement as Lord is the completion of his work. And so when Paul proclaims Christ Jesus as Lord, he is proclaiming Christ Jesus as the victorious, risen, ascended one, sitting at the right hand of God, the one who has defeated death and Satan and now reigns victorious. He is telling us of the finished work of Jesus. And that is a message perfectly suited for proclamation. Some of y'all will know this. The word gospel means good news, and it had a secular use in the ancient world. It was the thing that would happen when, a foreign ar- when, when, a, when Caesar's army was off fighting battles, and they would send back news that they had won. Gospel news, good news, would come back from the front line of victory. And this is the news that we find in the, in the message of Jesus, that he is Lord. But it's not the only kind of proclamation that we could do. And it's not the only kind of proclamation that's in the Bible. Gospel proclamation of victory stands in contrast to another kind of proclamation. And, and if we had read, if we'd been studying 2 Corinthians, we would have seen this and it would have been awesome. We could have done a whole sermon on this. We don't have time to do that this morning. But in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul contrasts his ministry of proclamation with the ministry of Moses. And Moses proclaimed, Moses proclaimed the law. Moses proclaimed the law to the people of Israel, and the law was and is beautiful and good. But for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, the law ultimately tells us that we cannot fulfill it. It ultimately results in our guilt and condemnation. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 provocatively calls Moses' ministry a ministry of condemnation and death. Moses' proclamation of the law called people to a work and revealed their inability to complete that work. Paul's proclamation of Christ is the message of Christ's fulfillment of that very work that Moses commanded. Moses issued war plans for a battle that we could not win. And Paul delivers the good news that Christ has won that battle on our behalf. This is the gospel that we can proclaim. The proclaimability of the gospel, which is how I titled this sermon, which is not a word, um, points us to the victory of Jesus, to the finished nature of Jesus. The gospel is proclaimable because Christ has won. That's wonderful news for us this morning, and it stands in contrast to every other message we hear in our world. Gospel is not advice or rules or a plan for living well or fixing the world. The gospel is a declaration that Christ has won and an invitation to rest in that reality. Most of you last week received an email or someone forwarded it to you with a whole lovely packet of information on me. Uh, I don't like reading nice things about myself, so I just skimmed it, but my mom tells me it was really nice, and so thank you. 
for that. Um, now, that's an entirely appropriate thing for, for a search committee to do. I'm glad they did it. I'm very grateful to them. Um, but it's a, also an excellent example of exactly not what's supposed to be happening up here. Okay? I'm to do the exact opposite of that email that you got. I'm not here to talk about me. My job is week in and week out to deliver you a packet without pictures about Jesus, okay? About his work, about who he is and about what he has done. And rather than offering resume details and the hopeful idea that this guy might be able to do something good, the content of that message is the victory that he has won and the sure things that he will do. Y'all don't know what to think about me. That's cool. We know what to think about Jesus. And that's our job week in and week out is to sit beneath that word and to rest in it. The gospel is a message that is proclaimed. As you have opportunity to share your faith with family and friends, this is what you do. That's your job too. The gospel's not about you, it's about Jesus. We're not offering someone our lives and suggesting it's better. We're offering them Christ and his finished work. But before we move on, beyond just sharing our faith, this reality should give us great confidence in holding our faith. Because if the message of the gospel is about Jesus and not you, about Jesus and not me, about his work and not our work, then the measure of our confidence in that gospel ought to be Christ and not ourselves. If you want assurance of your salvation, look to Jesus, don't look inside. The world will tell you to look inside to find strength and beauty and meaning. That's exactly the opposite of what the gospel tells us. Look outside yourself. There is a choice before us every day, every night as you lay in bed. My wife falls right asleep. I do not fall right asleep. I sit there reviewing the day that has come and thinking about the cares that are in advance. And the question before me and before all of us in those moments is who are we proclaiming to ourselves? Are we doing a ministry of condemnation, that mo telling us, proclaiming ourselves, wondering if we can hack it? Or is our ministry, even in our, the way we talk to ourselves, a proclamation of Jesus and his finished work? Oh, that we would do the latter as you lay in bed going to sleep. It's okay. Why? Not because you can handle it or have handled it or might handle it. It's okay because Christ has done the work on our behalf. So the gospel is a proclaimable message of Christ's victory. That is really good news. Second point, the speakers who proclaim it. What about the ones who do the proclaiming? Well, before talking about the human proclaimer or proclaimers, um, I want to notice something in this text, which is that Paul doesn't present himself as the only speaker in this passage. In a very important sense, Paul understands the primary speaker to be God himself. If we zoom out from verse 5, let's look at verses 3, 4, and 6 real quick. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the image of God. And then jumping to verse 6, For Christians, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The language that Paul uses here to describe God's work 
is remarkable. Last week, Mike did an awesome job of helping us to see the spiritual and supernatural realities of our spiritual lives, the struggle and opposition that we can face. And here Paul says that this whole conversation about belief and unbelief and reception of the gospel exists in that context. There is a battle going on between the God of this world, Satan, who is a blinder and a liar and a deceiver, and the true God. And look how he describes the true God here. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Y'all know where he said that. He said that in Genesis chapter 1 when he created the world. If we go back there and we want to think about speaking, and we're not going to do that right now, but it's fascinating to see that God actually spoke the world into existence. The spoken nature of the gospel ties beautifully to the spoken nature of creation because in Genesis 1, God speaks light into being. And if you are a Christian here this morning... You are a new creation, having been spoken into being by the gospel of Jesus Christ, applied to your hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your faith is a miracle. It's comparable to creation itself. It's resurrection from death to life. And what this means is that as we look at the whole mousetrap of salvation, God's doing a lot of work. Not only does he send Christ to do all the work on our behalf to accomplish our redemption, but he applies that redemption to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in this creative, let there be light kind of way. God is mighty to save. He is the speaker of speakers. Okay, well, where does that leave us? Where does that leave me? I'm a preacher. Where does that leave you as you have the opportunity to sit in a coffee shop with your neighbor and tell them about the gospel. And Paul's answer here is as servants. Let's look back at verse 5. What we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I was telling some of the meet and greets this, but one of my personal heroes has a connection to this church. I've never met him. Uh, didn't have that privilege, but Ed Clowney, who um, was a pastor and theologian and um, spent time in Charlottesville, uh, he wrote a little book on ministry, and it was a turning point in my own decision to go off to seminary. It's full of great lines. I read it every year, um, but he has this incredible, incredible little line. Uh, he says this, the stairway to ministry is not a grand staircase, but a back stairwell that leads down to the servants' quarters. The stairway to ministry is not a grand staircase up, up, to the, up to the house, but a back stairwell that leads down to the servants' quarters. Now, we don't have many back stairwells anymore, but those of you who watch Downton Abbey, you know what this is like, right? There's the upstairs folks and the downstairs folks. And Paul sa- Ed Clowney here says, and Paul says in this passage, we're downstairs folks. We are servants. And Paul in this text tells us that we're servants really in two different ways. And I want to highlight them both. First, we are servants of the Lord as his heralds. That's uniquely true about pastors and preachers, but it's true of all of us as we have opportunity to tell the good news to our friends, family, and neighbors. This is captured in the word proclaim. That verb means to herald. We don't use the word herald much, but that's a a verb tied to a very specific occupation in the ancient world. A herald was a servant, but had the opportunity, had the task, his job, 
was to speak the words of his master to those he was dealing with. So your status and your authority and the way you would be treated was entirely derivative from your master's authority. You would go and speak the words of your master. And the success or failure of that office was entirely dependent on whether or not you were faithful to your master's words. Now, that's not a job we have today, but my former occupation and the occupation of some in this room as attorneys is pretty close to that role. Lawyers talk a lot. I know y'all think that. But usually when they're talking, they're talking on behalf of their client. I could talk to big, important CEOs and tell them we pay them millions of dollars. I had nothing to do with paying them millions of dollars, right? I was speaking entirely on behalf of my client. And if I said something that my client was not happy with me saying, I would get fired. That's what lawyers do. That's what heralds do. And that's how Paul understood his vocation and how he presents to us my vocation as a pastor and each of our vocations in the lives of our friends. This then helps us understand verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul here, and he says something similar in 1 Corinthians, says, I'm not tampering with this message. I'm not changing it up. I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to make it more palatable. My job... I'm going to trick you into believing it. My job is to tell you what God told me because I'm a herald and my success or failure is on that basis. And that's, first of all, just what a good herald does. But it also recognizes the supernatural realities behind the gospel proclamation. Paul had no reason to tamper with the message because Paul knew that the reception of that message was a miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit. As he spoke, let there be light into the hearts of those who heard. And so Paul's measure of success, and you see this beautifully in his goodbye to the Ephesian elders and Acts, his measure of success is not the response of any given person. His measure of success, his conscience being clean, is entirely a function of him proclaiming exactly what God told him to say. The good news about Jesus and his accomplishment. Paul is a servant. We are servants Your minister is a servant of God, his herald to proclaim his good news to you. But the second aspect of servanthood in this text, and the one that actually is what Paul uses the word servant to describe, is that we are servants to the hearers of this message. Paul sees himself as a servant of the Corinthians. The idea here is of a table servant, a waiter who brings before a people, a feast. You might be wondering as you reflect on this passage, where does that, does this mean we don't have to actually proclaim the gospel? But if you look at Romans 10, 13 to 15, and we won't do that, Paul makes abundantly clear we do. No one's going to believe if they don't hear, no one's going to hear if they don't get told, and no one's going to get told if they're not sent. Paul sees himself ultimately as presenting to the people a good service. He is their servant presenting to them this good news of Jesus And here we can return to wondering what the heck's going on here this morning and why we do a tryout sermon. Um, I was trying to think, I like analogies, and so I was trying to think of a good one for for this thing, whatever it is. Thinking of other occupations where you have to try out to to get in. And one that came to mind, which I think is only, I only know from the movies, it may not actually be true, but if you're, evidently, if you're a chef 
and you interview for a job in a kitchen, uh, they'll have you make an omelet. That's kind of the old school thing to make you do. You make an omelet because evidently an omelet is hard to make. It, it tests a lot of your, your techniques. You have to deal with an egg, which is not easy to do. And I've, having tried to make an omelet, I'm uh, well aware that it does expose your deficiencies as a, as a cook. That's the tryout to be a chef. Make an omelet. Let's see how you do. And that kind of works as an analogy for what's going on here today. Make an omelet, preach a sermon, see what happens, right? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that analogy breaks down in a really important way. Because in God's economy, the minister in the pulpit and the friend in the coffee shop is not the chef. I am not the chef. To return to the Downton Abbey reference, for those of you who get it, if you don't, that's cool. Uh, In the downstairs economy, I'm not Mrs. Padmore. I'm a footman, right? My entire job is to take a plate and put it in front of you. To take Jesus and his finished work, the omelet that he has made, the Christ-prepared feast, and set it before you. That's the measure of my success or failure. That's the measure of your success or failure as you have opportunity to share the gospel with your friends this tryout sermon isn't about whether or not I can make an omelet. It's about whether or not I can set a plate in front of you and let you feast. A Christ-prepared meal. And that, friends, is good, good news. It might seem like that lowers the bar in advance of the vote. That's not my intention. <laughs> I don't think. At least it's not the main thing. The main thing is that my limited role as a preacher and your limited role in the lives of your neighbors points us to the graciousness and power of God and the goodness of the gospel that is contained therein. This church has an incredibly rich history of good preaching, and it's uh, daunting and humbling to imagine I might stand up here on occasion to preach to you guys. I love preaching. I love writing sermons. I worked hard on this one. I hope it was as helpful and edifying. Lord willing, I'll spend many hours laboring to craft sermons that are beautiful and true. But you guys need to know, and I need to know, and I want to leave you with this this morning, that you do not need my labors or my fancy sermons or my mediocre sermons. What you need, what I need, is the finished work of Jesus his accomplishment on our behalf, the work of the Holy Spirit, applying that to our hearts, uniting us to him, hiding our lives with him in heaven, that we might be redeemed and resurrected with him on the last day. What you need is exactly what you find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ has done the work, and the gospel is packaged and delivered to us as good news that is proclaimable, that is an announcement of his victory. Brothers and sisters, Christ has met your needs. He has done it all. If you're not a Christian here this morning, he offers himself to you freely, without condition. Receive him, and these things will be true of you. And so we gather week in and week out, And we hear this good news of Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who has accomplished on our behalf, who reigns victorious, having defeated death, and who will come again. 
And Lord willing, on our beds at night or in the morning when we're talking to ourselves, that's what we're saying too. And we're talking to one another in our small groups and friendships on the way. We're proclaiming Jesus to one another. And we need to get good at that. Because on the last day, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we'll have an option. We can proclaim ourselves or we can proclaim Christ. And brothers and sisters, we will proclaim Christ. God will look at us and we will say, look at him. I have nothing to offer to you, Lord, but Christ has said he did this all on my behalf. And we will hear those sweet and good words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Proclaim Christ, brothers and sisters. It is the good news of his finished work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a glorious gospel that we get to share. There are so many other versions of this that would be harder to tell, and yet you give us good news of celebration, that Christ has won victory on our behalf that there is nothing more for us to do but to receive him by faith with empty hands by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for the privilege of proclaiming Jesus to these beloved saints. Would you work these truths into our hearts that we might get really good at proclaiming Jesus that on that last day we might sing of his glory as we enter into his presence. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.